Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west end of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God, Horeb. The angel of God appeared to him in flames of fire, blazing out of the middle of a bush. He looked. The bush was blazing away, but it didn't burn up. Moses said, What's going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why doesn't the bush burn up? God saw that he had stopped to look. God called to him from out of the bush. Moses, Moses. He said, yes, I'm right here. God said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. God said, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain. And now I have come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. The Israelite cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses answered God, But why me? What makes you think that I could ever go to Pharaoh? and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'll be with you, God said, and this will be the proof that I am the one who sent you. When you have brought my people out of Egypt, you will worship God right here at this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, The God of your fathers sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God continued with Moses. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob sent me to you. This has always been my name, and this is how I will always be known. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon.
Well, g'day St. Stephen's. It's, uh, it's a real joy to be with you tonight and uh, it's been a joy to be with you throughout the day, in fact. Um, I'm really looking forward to bringing God's Word to you tonight. I'm just, I'm just a bit sad I couldn't do it in person. Uh, but let me pray before we get stuck into God's Word. Father, we want to thank you so much for your Word. We want to thank you that you have spoken to us. And we pray now as we look at your word from the book of Exodus and we think about the implications of that for uh, young people, that you would enable us to change by your Holy Spirit, that you'd inspire us to follow you in everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was uh, reading an article recently by Rory Shiner uh, and it was on the Gospel Coalition website and he, he... pointed out this interesting change that's occurred in the way that the army recruits personnel. He talked about how in the first half of last century, recruitment posters would say things like this, come into the ranks and fight for king and country and don't stay in the crowd and just stare. But today, these days, army recruitment ads say things more like this, do what you love, discover your army. And he was just uh, illustrating a change in the way we think about right and wrong, where we used to make decisions based mostly on external things, what's right for my country, what's right for my community, what's right for my family, things like that. Now we make decisions mostly based on internal things, what's right for you, what what you've always loved, what you've always wanted to do, uh, what it is that you love. And the default for decision-making these days is this, what's right for me is what's right in general. And this is one example, of course, in the way, of the way things have changed, patterns of thinking have changed, and of course, over the centuries, that happens, patterns of thinking change. And as this happens, the, the culture around us that we are part of influences us. As some might say, it disciples us. Now, without any other source of influence, we naturally become like the society, the culture that is around us, because it's the air that we breathe. And so how do we keep thriving and flourishing in faith in the midst of this kind of atmosphere? And in particular, how do young people keep thriving and flourishing in faith? Well, part of the answer to this lies in the other sources of influence that we listen to. And this is something that we're going to explore a little bit from Exodus chapter 3 today. Uh, And in the first couple of chapters, life's pretty good for the Israelites. Then there's a new king and things get really hard for the Israelites. And in particular, life is particularly hard for the children. And the Pharaoh didn't want any more Israelites to be born because they were a threat. And so just before we get to chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, it says this, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And then verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so when we begin to read chapter 3, the question that is sort of burning in our, in our minds is, what is God going to do about this? And so let's see what happens. And so Moses is out there, he's tending the sheep of his uh, father-in-law, he sees a burning bush, uh, he notices that the bush doesn't burn up, and then he goes over and has a look and God speaks to him. And Moses is scared, he hides his face, and then God says to him in verse 6, Moses, 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then in verse 7, we come to the heart of what God is going to do. And he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And then, I love this in verse 8, God signals his his intention. He says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. God has seen the misery and he's heard the cries of his people and he's concerned about their suffering and so he has come down to rescue them. Now, I remember my son uh, learning to ride his bike and we got to the point where he's pretty comfortable on the flat and we thought, let's give a hill a go. And so it started off well, Uh, we started going down the hill and as happens on hills, we picked up speed gradually and as Ben started to pick up speed, I said to him, slow down mate and he didn't slow down and I called out again, slow down, he said, I can't dad, I said, squeeze the brake and he said, I can't, I can't dad, help me and he picked up speed and I realised this was not going to end well and he needed me to rescue him and so as I, what I did is I flew down the hill past him and I jumped off my bike and I flung it out of the way just in time to catch him before he went flying out into the intersection of the road that was just below us. I saw his misery, I heard his cries, I was concerned about the suffering that he was going to be facing if he went out to the intersection and I came down to rescue him. Now, I am not like God in the least, it was my fault actually that Ben was in that situation but This is the key thing that God did in response to the suffering of His people. He promised to rescue them. And we find out later that through Moses, He leads them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and they're rescued from the Egyptians. It's a key moment in the history of Israel, it's the Exodus, it's the the title of the book, and this promise of rescue points forward to that rescue, to the Exodus. But what is so interesting and wonderful is what God says to Moses in verse 15. He says, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. What I'm going to do, God says, is so great that my name will be known by every generation. And while this chapter of the Bible looks forward to the Exodus, there's another part of the Bible, Psalm 78, that looks back to the Exodus and it says this, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. And verse 6 says, so the next generation would know them even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God. And looking back at the Exodus hundreds of years later, this psalm pleads with the people of Israel, keep telling the next generation about the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the way He rescued His people. That message was for every generation. And we look back not just to the Exodus, but also to that greater rescue from sin and death at the cross of Christ. I love it in Galatians chapter 1, it says in verse 4, it says, Jesus gave Himself for our sins to rescue us 
from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Just as that Exodus message was for all generations, this gospel message is also for every generation. It's for adults and it's for kids, it's for retirees and for babies, it's for teens and tweens and Generation X and Millennials and Xennials and for Generation Z and Alpha and every generation after. It's for the children that aren't born yet. Maybe one day you might have a child in the future. This gospel is for that child. The gospel is for every generation. And if the gospel is for every generation, then there's a few things that really, really matter. The first of those things is this, youth and children's ministry really matter. And I may be biased because I work at YouthWorks, but but I think it really matters. And one of the myths that kind of does the rounds uh, in churches is this, that young people are the church of tomorrow. They're the church of the future. And of course, this myth endures because it's partly true. But even if, we're, but if we are to take seriously the idea that the gospel is for every generation, then we've got to see that the young people are not just the church of the future, not just the church of tomorrow, but they are the church of now. They are the church of today. Young people, if you're a young person watching, you are a fully-blown member of the body of Christ, a proper disciple. Kids are not just mini-Christians waiting to become part of adult Christianity. And because of that, discipling young people to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ is so, so important. But more than this, You may know, being young and Christian is hard. I read a book recently called Faith for Exiles. It was a book that came out in 2019. And what it does is describe the practices that resilient disciples have in common, those disciples that thrive in faith post-adolescence. And it describes the world that young people are being brought up in as digital Babylon, this kind of exile And their research makes it really clear that the culture of digital exiles, the culture that they live live in, is an influential discipler of young people. And so I brought a diagram with me, and it compares the time spent by the typical 15 to 23-year-old consuming screen media as compared to the time that they take taking in spiritual content. And this diagram shows this this discipleship clearly. Screen media, for your typical 15 to 23-year-old young person, gets a whopping 2,767 hours per year, as compared to the 153 hours that spiritual content, of spiritual content that is taken in. Uh, It's a little bit higher for young people that attend church, 291 hours. But what this shows us is clear, and that is that screens disciple, actually culture disciples through screens. 
Uh, and one of the impacts of the way that culture disciples young people is that according to research from Faith to Exiles, the rate of young people leaving Christianity rose from 59% uh, in 2011 to 64% in 2019. This is a tragic uh, figure that we look at. And as it is with every generation, young people bear the brunt of the cultural change and the cultural discipleship. And so if you're a young person, I just want to acknowledge and say to you, you're at the coalface of all of this change. It's hard being young and Christian. And so I want to call everyone at St. Stephen's to this. Invest in youth and children's ministry. Invest in it financially. Whatever you're able to give to the work of this church and to the work of other churches that they might be able to invest in youth and children's ministry, do what you can. Invest in prayer. Uh, Invest by getting involved. I've no doubt that many of you watching are involved in kids and youth ministry in some way. Can you play a small or a big part in actively discipling young people uh, in some other way as well? Uh, Invest by getting to know and supporting and encouraging the people that are involved, like Pippi and others in kids uh, and youth ministry, and the leaders involved that are investing in this part of the body of Christ. Uh, I want you to support your senior minister as he prioritises youth and kids ministry. And the reason we want to invest is because youth and kids ministry matters. The gospel is for every generation. And if the gospel is for every generation, then secondly, the whole body of Christ matters. Because it's not just about young people. 1 Corinthians makes it clear in chapter 12 that the body of Christ is not just made up of one part, but many. You know, the eye doesn't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head doesn't say to the feet, I don't need you. Every part of the body of Christ needs the other parts. Have you ever thought that the church needs young people? And not just so that the church has a future, but because young people have a genuine contribution to make. Part of it is their zeal and their passion for the gospel. What a gift to the church. Jesus definitely talks about the way that children's faith, um, the simplicity of their faith, is a model that benefits the whole church. See, young people are good for the church. But more than that, Chap Clark, who's from Fuller Youth Institute, says that when young people have what he calls contributing purpose, that is when they are valued and appreciated and when they feel they can make a genuine contribution to the body of Christ, they are much more likely to remain in thriving and flourishing faith long term. Young people are good for the church and when young people are good for the church, that is also good for them. But the body of Christ also needs the older generations, the wisdom and the maturity that is gained by years and years in the faith is the gift to the passion and zeal of the young. Again, according to Fuller Youth Institute, one of the best predictors for young people remaining Christian long-term is the number of adults that invest in their discipleship. Chap Clark, again, talks about something called the five-to-one ratio, where every young person has five adults of a diverse age, stage, and circumstance intentionally investing in their faith. If you're young, seek out 
older people to invest in your faith. If you're of an older generation, seek out young people who you can invest in. And one of the best examples I've seen of this is a story about a 13-year-old boy whose dad gathered a group of people, a group of adults, who each shared a Bible verse with this young person on his 13th birthday. And then they highlighted these Bible verses in a Bible, a brand new Bible, that then they gave to him. And this ceremony, this kind of coming of age, made it really clear to this 13-year-old boy that there were significant adults in his life who cared about his faith. Uh, That's an excellent example. I loved hearing about that. And so, if you are a young person, older Christians are a gift to your faith. Seek them out, but also you can be a gift to their faith. And if you're older, younger people are a gift to your faith and you can also be a gift to theirs. How might you be able to invest in one another? Well, here's one little challenge for you. Uh, Maybe as the first step, get to know the names of five people who are in a different generation to yours. And then whenever, God willing, we come out of lockdown, make sure you say hello to these five people, call them by name, maybe even strike up a conversation. Make it so that you're actually friends with one another, that you have a relationship with one another. And the reason for this is because the whole body of Christ matters. I think it starts with knowing one another. So how do we, and particularly young people, as they are at the, the coal face of cultural change, how do we keep thriving and flourishing in faith in the midst of a culture that disciples us? Well, we need to pass on the gospel and its life-giving message to every generation. We need to invest in kids and youth ministry and we need to remember that the whole body of Christ matters. I'm going to ask God that he would do that at St. Stephen's and in all of our lives now. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word and we want to thank you that the gospel message is for all generations. May it be that here at St. Stephen's, uh, that message is taken seriously and that it's passed on uh, and young people are discipled uh, and that that's made a priority. We want to pray, Father, that that young people and the generations would know one another. Uh, And we, we thank you that the gospel is for all generations.